We thank God once and again this morning that we are continuing in our text in 1 John chapter 2. So if you would please get your Bibles, and you may remain seated just because it's going to be a, quite a portion of text. You don't have to stand if you don't want to. Uh, but just get 1 John chapter 2. Our text will come from verses 1 and 2. But we'll read the entire chapter as this is the opening message for this particular chapter. So 1 John 2, we'll read the entire chapter. It reads, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for, the, for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but, of, but it is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does, that, that does the will of God abides forever." Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all three things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but 
he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the absoluteness of your word. Thank you for the foundation of your word. Thank you for this great epistle written, formulated, guided, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We pray that we might listen to your word, receive it with gladness and joy, understand that it is a comfort to our heart and is a glory to you for us to even be present because you, O Father, receive all glory for what you have done. In the name of Jesus do we pray, amen. So in 1 John here, we see as we read the text, John is completely absolute and resolute with his understanding of God, Jesus Christ, the nature of sin, the law of God, and the righteousness that is in Christ. He places so many absolute statements about truth and sin and Jesus, and righteousness, and darkness, and walking in the light, and out of the light, not being in or out, because there is no gray area with God. There is only light and darkness. There is only good and evil. There is only holy and unholy. So as we begin to unpack this, I want to give you some encouragement as this epistle can sometimes be discouraging to someone who is a young Christian or may not understand the full context. So we'll labor today in just two verses to go through this in 1 John. In a court of law where legal matters are handled, there may be multiple parties involved. Typically, a judge will give more credibility to each individual dependent on their title. If there is a witness that is called to the stand and they are only an acquaintance of yours, their testimony may hold more or less weight depending on the situation. An acquaintance has no dog in the fight. They don't know you very well and they are not close enough to you to make an intimate judgment about your character. There are allies in the courtroom. But an ally is only good when their cause aligns with your cause. As long as your goal or cause cooperates with their own self-interest, they're on your side. But if your best interest does not line up or agree with theirs, then an ally can become an enemy. In the courtroom of God, there are also advisors. This may be a mother or father, brother, sister, a best friend, or someone who just is close to you. 
They may be wise. They may even have firsthand knowledge of your personality, your good deeds, or the entire situation. But they lack the legal credentials necessary to represent you. Or because they are so close to you, they, might, they, might not, they may not even be considered to be a credible, unbiased witness or representative for your case. This is where we were left in God's courtroom. As wicked sinners before a righteous and holy God, we all fall short in keeping the perfect righteousness required by God's law. And so God has the right God must punish us according to the standard of his law. To make things worse, the acquaintances, the allies, and the advisors are all in the same sinful position. So even if they wanted to help you plead your case, they are not righteous enough to do so for even themselves. This is why the language of our previous text in 1 John 1, 8 through 10 is so strong. So fitting and so powerful because if anyone can sit in the courtroom of God guilty and stand before his holiness and say that they have no sin, then, as Brother Jimmy stated, you have believed the greatest deception. And if you have been so self-deceived and believed a lie, then how can the truth be in you? It can't. But out of this hopelessness, this hopeless state, comes the most important person in the courtroom. It is what our text calls today the advocate. See, unlike the acquaintance, the advocate knows you intimately. He knows every sin, every secret, and knows every detail of what you are guilty of. He knows you have no case. Unlike the ally, he doesn't need cooperation from you. He doesn't need your works. He doesn't need your self-interest to align with his in order to represent you. As a matter of fact, your self-interest was only sin. And there was no mutual benefit to be gained from you in the first place. And unlike the advisor, he is the most qualified. He is the wisest counsel and his track record is flawless. He has never lost a case for those he chooses to advocate for. And all who were guilty that he represents have been set free. The advocate is the Lord of glory, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ. So let's read our text that we'll come from today. Let's go back to verse 1. Verse 1 of John, 1 John chapter 2. It reads, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, oftentimes we, when we speak of the nature of salvation, we speak of the rescuer that Jesus is, but we are heavy on grace. I promise me and Jimmy did not talk before this sermon. We are heavy on grace, as we should be. 
But we should also not neglect to speak of the justice, or rather the justness in which God has to operate. A condition of God's holiness is that he must punish sin. Sin cannot be allowed to remain in his presence, and since we sin, he must punish sinners. God is faithful to forgive our sins, but he is also just to do so as well. This is why reading 1 John without a clear understanding can feel like you're on a seesaw. I mean, John, you said that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. But then you said that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Then you said you are writing these things so that we don't sin. But then you say that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This is because we have to understand the progress of a Christian and the perfection of Christ. I heard one evangelist say, it is not perfection, but direction. The bar is Christ, and what a high bar it is. We will never reach the perfection of Christ on this side of glory, but that is not a case for us to discontinue striving. It is like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Even though we will never know the true weight of sin, of our sin, we can still look at Christ and the beautiful tragedy of the cross and at least understand the consequences of sin. And the scriptures testify that the wages of sin are what? Death. But it's even deeper than that. A righteous and holy man, the God-man, who had never known sin became sin for us. Christ didn't die for no reason. Christ was not crucified for no reason. Hey, he had to die for you, for your sins, to satisfy the justice of God. This is the cost for the forgiveness of sins. In God's courtroom, this is the only form of payment that God would accept, that would extinguish the debt that we owed. The shed blood of bulls, the shed blood of goats couldn't do it. Matter of fact, let's turn over there. Hold your place in 1 John 2. Turn over to Hebrews 10, and we'll read verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 9, it reads, it says this, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body you have prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I come. Who comes? Christ comes. I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
Above when he said, sacrifices and offerings and barn offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. So not only is Christ willing to represent you as an advocate, but it is his will to do so. It was the father's pleasure to bruise or crush his own son. And for the joy, Christ endured the punishment and the shame that he might obtain a spotless bride, <coughs> which he presents to the father in his advocacy with all glory. There was no ultimate glory in the slaughter of bulls and goats, which could not take away sins. One reason why is because those bulls and goats were not representatives of man. They were beasts of the field. They were not made in the image of God. They were not given the soul of man, the volition of man, the intelligence of man, the conscience of man. A lion is not guilty of murder when he slays a gazelle. A gorilla is not guilty of adultery when it mates with multiple partners. Adam was made in the image of God and Eve thereafter, but they sinned. They fell. Adam, humanity. Humanity's representatives failed, which is why we needed a second Adam. Not just from the bloodline of flesh, but one who came from the Holy Spirit. Another reason, the most important reason, is that they did not possess the ability to defy nature and rise from the dead. No goat or bull a priest ever slaughtered rose up from the altar for the forgiveness of man's sins. No man in history possessed the power nor the authority to resurrect themselves from the dead except the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 10, 18, it says this, Jesus said, <coughs> No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself, of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. The, this commandment have I received of my Father. So when John says in 1 John, I write these things so that you won't sin, it is a call to remembrance of who Jesus is, what he did so that you will not take sin lightly. As a Christian, you will hate your sin. You won't play with sin. You will understand day by day, more and more, as you grow in sanctification, what your sin and my sin did to the Savior. But with that harsh reality, there is another beautiful one. It is that if we sin, if we sin, because of what was accomplished by Christ, he stands in God's courtroom, fully righteous, fully just, as an advocate for us, because justice has been executed and satisfied in him forever. In other words, justice is not sacrificed on the altar of grace, nor is grace diminished when God executes justice. 
but rather justice and grace are equally distributed under God's perfect love and God's perfect law. We are guilty before God because of the perfect standard of his law, but we are afforded unmerited grace because of his perfect love. And both the law of God and the love of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This advocate that we have is a complete one, not lacking anything. <coughs> there is no symbolism in his sacrifice. It is not a metaphor. He literally died for our sins taking on the punishment that we deserve, standing in the courtroom, pleading, and making us whole. Let's go to the second verse of our text today. Go back to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, second verse. And I'm leaning on this heavy because as we move through 1 John, even, all, even on down to chapter 3, we will see this is sort of an echoing theme all the way over to John 4. 1 John 4. Verse 2 reads, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to dispel a myth that goes around in some theological circles and that is the propitiation mentioned here in this text is some form of grace in opposition to the Father's justice. That somehow the Son of God manifests mercy while the Father manifests justice. This is not the case because the Son and the Father are one. They are one in their agreement on every single thing. Pastor Castillo expounded brilliantly on the nature of the Trinity in the previous verses and the wholeness in that agreement that the Father and the Son share in all things. In love, in mercy, in truth, in justice, and in the execution of that justice. See, the Son was not removed when God executed mercy upon Adam and Eve before he cast them out of Eden. The punishment for their sin was death, and while they eventually did die, he granted them mercy by the space of hundreds of years. But also by declaring the original gospel, the, what theologians call the proto-evangelium. The original gospel message of the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. Jesus Christ was there when judgment was executed upon Sodom and Gomorrah, when the city was destroyed by God's perfect judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ was present in eternity past when the plan of salvation was established. The Lord Jesus Christ was present in eternity past when the plan of punishment for sins was established. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be there when the end of all things in human history comes to a close. When every wrong will be made right and all justice will be executed in full and the fullness of glorification of his saints, which will be displayed in wonderful radiant robes as a testament to his glory and his great grace. So the Father and the Son are one. 
Now, I don't want you to get overly technical with this portion, but I have to. I feel it is a point that is vital to establishing a foundation for moving forward in 1 John. We see in 1 John, he pulls no punches. He doesn't waste time with apologetics or even greetings. And he is very absolute with his language, as he should be, because everything the Lord does is absolutely perfect. Therefore, why would he not speak through his apostle in such definitive manners? The word propitiation here is the Greek word helasimos. This form of the word is only used two times in the New Testament, and both times they are used in 1 John. The first time here in 1 John 2.2, and, and the next time in 1 John 4.10. Now here is the nerdy theological part, if you bear with me for a second. This word, halasimos, propitiation, in both instances in 1 John is a noun and not a verb. The significance this has is the finality of the propitiation that Christ provides. Propitiation is the covering, is the satisfaction. It is the appeasement of God's perfect justice that should have been on us, but was comforted or rather made satisfied in Christ. Remember, John is speaking in absolute. He is the propitiation for our sins. A noun describes a person, place, or thing. A verb describes an action. But there is no further action left to be done because Christ has finished it all. He is the propitiation for our sins. So while 1 John can appear discouraging with a very surface level awareness, understanding the author, the audience, and the context of the words being spoken provides us with the most comforting clarity. As we discussed, that's John's intention to give believers confidence so that we may know the truth. Matthew Henry writes this, so brilliant. He is the expiatory victim, the propitiatory sacrifice that has been offered to the judge for all our offenses against his majesty and law and government. In vain do professors of Rome distinguish between an advocate of redemption and an advocate of intercession or mediator of such different service. The mediator of intercession, the advocate for us, is the mediator of redemption, the propitiation for our sins. It is his propitiation he pleads, and we might be apt suppose that his blood has lost its value and efficacy if no mention had been made of it in heaven since the time it was shed. But now we see, <coughs> excuse me, it is of esteem there, since it is continually represented in the intercession of the great advocate, the attorney general for the church of God, unquote, Matthew Henry. Christ is an advocate, but his advocacy is not needed to be a continual thing for the sacrifices of sins, which is why we don't take communion and say that the body is literally Christ's body or the blood is literally Christ's blood. 
It is a representation because the work of Christ, the sacrifice, has been done. We do not crucify the Lord every Sunday. It is finished. Here's another nerdy theological point. There's a related word. I'm going to mess this up, but it's hilasterion. And hilasterion is the Greek word that is related to hilasimos. And it means mercy seat. In Hebrews 9.5, it talks about the mercy seat. Uh, the, the mercy seat was basically a large lid that went over the Ark of the Covenant. And what would we put in the Ark of the Covenant? We put God's law in the Ark of the Covenant. And so the hilasterion, the mercy seat of God, was placed over the law, and God's glory was appeased. Christ is our mercy seat. He stands in the gap between the people, the enmity, the enemies of God, and he receives on himself all the punishment of God to satisfy the mercy, to satisfy the wrath to provide us mercy. This is the beautiful grace of God that we have received. He became sin for us that we might have his righteousness in us. Let's go to the end of verse 2. Turn back to 1 John 2, verse 2 at the end of the verse. What does it read? And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Many have taken this text as proof text to say that Christ died for every person who has ever lived. But as stated before, if we know the author and the author's audience, which was the Jews, the early church believers, and the context, Christ's definitive propitiation, then we should know that the word world here doesn't refer to every human being who is in the world. If the finished work of the sacrifice of Christ applied to every single person, then no one would be in hell. No one would receive the justice of God and no one would be guilty before God for their sin. Because whose propitiation is better than Christ? No one. But we know that that's not the case because we know that everyone in the world doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. We know that everyone will not receive the covenantal grace of God, even some who profess that they know the Lord. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone that says unto me, what? Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You worker of iniquity, lawlessness. The reason why Jesus says depart from me is because these false believers didn't come to Jesus believing in him alone for their salvation. 
But they came to Jesus with their works. Instead of coming to Jesus Christ in total surrender to Christ, they come to Christ giving him a laundry list of the works that they have done. How they have prophesied. How they have cast out devils. How they have performed miracles in his name. Look at what we've done, Jesus. You need to let us in. Instead of looking at what Jesus has done for them. In John 6, 29, Jesus answered those who wanted to know what works they could do. Jesus says, he answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. (coughs) And that's the answer to the whole issue. Belief. Belief in Jesus Christ. Very familiar verse. Turn over to John 3.16. John 3.16. In John 3.16, very familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That he He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. No Christian would ever make the argument that non-believers are saved. Only believers in Jesus Christ are saved. The question is, are there non-believers in the world? Yes. Will non-believers in the world believe in Jesus Christ? No. Then that means the propitiation of Jesus Christ cannot be for the whole of humanity in the world. Jesus Christ's advocacy is not for every single person in the world, but but it is exclusive to those who believe in him. And those who believe in him can't believe in him unless the father calls and draws them to the son. And the son will save them and keep them. And he doesn't lose one. At the beginning we said he doesn't lose a case on the advocacy which he chooses. See, the grace of God is not cheap. It came at a high cost. The ransom was so heavy that it took the holiness of God in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save those who believe. So when someone paints the salvation of God as some frivolous condition, dependent on man's decision, It does a disservice to the justice of God and the grace of God that was meted out on Calvary and established in heaven. Let us close with Revelation 5 and 9. I chose this specifically because we have 1 John and we have John the Revelator, same author, Revelation 5, 9. Look at what he says here. This is, of course, the beast 
They are worshiping God. The 24 elders, they fall down and worship God as well. This is an image symbolically in heaven of the host of heaven and the worshipers of Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are worshiping God. And what do they do? And how does he describe them? Revelation 5, 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll, the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Same author, similar context. Who are the redeemed? Believers. And what are they redeemed by? His blood. And where are they redeemed from? Out of what? Every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Last I checked, tribes exist in the world. Tongues exist in the world. People groups exist in the world. And nations are in the world. So Christ is the propitiation for all those who believe the elect of God across geographical areas, across cultures, across languages, and across time. And John writes, not just for our sins, not just for us Jewish believers, not just the early church at the time of John's writing, but extended to all those who are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is finished. The propitiation for our sins are done. This is the confidence that we have because it is complete. Our Savior is complete. God's justice is satisfied and complete. And the grace that we have been given cannot be reduced. It is complete. Because we have a complete advocate. God the Father did not give his one and only unique son just so that we could have salvation as a possibility. Christ didn't endure the fullness of the wrath of his father, God, the execution of the justice of God on the cross in his death for just a conditional opportunity. He had a mission, and a mission has a goal, and the goal was to save all those in whom the Father calls, and those who were foreknown and predestined to live with him before the foundation of the world. And are we really going to say that Jesus failed to accomplish the Father's will because of the choice that I make? Because of the decision of man? God forbid. We have a sure salvation. This is the reason why 1 John speaks in so many absolutes. This is the reason why 1 John does not pull any punches because he is sure of the Savior. He is sure of the gospel unto salvation, which is only in Jesus Christ. His surety came from how we began this great epistle. We have seen him, we have looked upon him, and we have handled him. But guess what the Bible says? Blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe.
That's you and that's me. That's us. We are the church as we progress and move forward to an infinite Christ who has an infinite mercy that will last forever because of his advocacy. Let us bless his name. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truth and salvation in your word. We thank you for your great mission that you came down in the form of flesh and you became obedient even unto death, the death of a cross. You extinguished what we could not. You paid the price that we could not. And you lived a life that is impossible for us to do so. You made it to where we can step before the throne of grace. You rent the partition that kept us from the holy God. You made it possible. It was your will to do so. You stood in the courtroom fully confident of your righteousness, knowing our scarlet sin. But even knowing our sin, for the joy you administered your blood. And in the court of law, in God's courtroom, we have been made free. Not just free for a day, not just free for a period of time, but we have been made free indeed in your son. In your son in whom we worship. We do look at the cross and we see our sin and the consequence. But we see the triumph at the cross. Because as he rose, we rise with him. And one day we will live with him. But as we tarry, let us read the words of this epistle and many others and take confidence in knowing that for surety our Savior is sure. Our Savior is faithful and he is just. He is a warrior. He is a lion. But he is also a lamb that was slain for our sin. In Jesus' name do we worship you. We praise you and honor you. Amen.